Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. He's a leading historian on Carolingian history and has recently written a book, Making and Unmaking of the Carolingians, 751 to 888. Please welcome Stuart Early. And as always, I want to, as we're going to discuss Charlemagne today, and he's very much part of Carolingian history. So how did you get into Carolingian history in the first place? It's... um... A familiar story, I suppose, of, of uh, having a very charismatic teacher uh, as a as a boy, as a schoolboy. I was probably a bit of a geeky schoolboy and, and was interested in history. I very interested in the Romans for some reason. And so I thought the Middle Ages looked quite dull because it was all shaggy barbarians destroying things and then got to university and that's the thing very... is most people's perception of medieval history yes, it? yes, yes. <laughs> and of course it annoys me now and i think no not like the romans who were horrible mm. the middle ages is actually much nicer uh, than the roman empire but i was taught a uh, among my it was a man called patrick wormold who was a a, a wonderful uh, charismatic teacher and it was all new to me so i didn't know about europe after rome so i not only got this new world of of Merovingians in Gaul with their long hair and Visigoths in, in Spain, um, but got the idea that there were new ways of looking at the past. This was the 1970s, and people in Britain were really just rediscovering uh, Europe after Rome, the early Middle Ages. So it was not only new to me, the nice thing was that our whole class felt we were at the beginning of a new kind of, of history, and um, I've just never stopped, I suppose. And of course, let's start with... Charlemagne's father, Pepin the Short. And what, what, how is he? Where did he come from? And how did, was he from dynasty already, or did he establish a new dynasty? Where, where did he come from, Pepin? Pepin is exactly as you say. He, he is the the creator of a new dynasty. He's from a very complicated world of conflict in in the Frankish kingdom what we'd call France, roughly France, some of modern Germany, some of the the low countries. Um, And he is a member of a great aristocratic family. And in some ways, I always suggest to students, the thing to think about is maybe the Godfather movies here, of these different clans fighting for power Mm -hmm. with a language of honour and family. And Pippin is from a family that is trying to, dominate the kingdom as the older kings, the famous long-haired kings, the Merovingian dynasty, seems to be losing power. But there's no reason for the Merovingians to have stopped. Uh, Pippin, um, it's not that they fade away. Carolingian propaganda would like people to think that these kings were fading away and the Carolingians had to take over. No, the Carolingians launch a, a, 
uh, a takeover for their own purposes. And I think Pippin's main enemies are his own family, in fact. And that's what drives him, I think, in, in, in his bid for power. In As is the most chase in royal, royal feuds, in it? Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> He's, um, he has to jump at that time because his brother... He's got various brothers who could challenge him. None of them are kings. They all obey the, the old dynasty, but the old dynasty really has lost power to the aristocracy. So there's a lot of feuding. It is a kind of Game of Thrones situation. Who should be entitled to rule? And how do you persuade people that you are the right person to rule? And so Pippin needs to make a bid for power in 751. Otherwise, his nephew will become old enough to challenge him. And one of his brothers is on the prowl seeking to regain an inheritance. So I think it's, it's we shouldn't think of the dynasty as a unified family, but as full of quarrelsome members, each of whom thinks they've got a claim. And Pippin, in order to keep himself secure, makes a bid for the throne and has this ritual coronation in 751 and gets rid of the old dynasty, sends him off to a monastic imprisonment and proclaims himself, his wife and their children as the new royal family. So he's so he is an usurper in, in other words? He is, he is. But they mustn't, they mustn't say that because, again, it's like Game of Thrones, if you do this, then somebody, some other aristocrat with a mighty sword and a lot of followers will think, well, why can't I do it? Mm. So you don't want people to think that anybody can do it. So he needs to have a ritual, he needs to have a ritual coronation, blessing, and an aura of royalty. Even as he's challenging a king, he must immediately make himself look like a, a ruler whom God wants to rule to try and stop other people trying to take over. So how does he do that? How does he arrange the ceremony to, to make it legit that he isn't really unsurper, as he said? It's uh, That's the good question how does he do it and and there was two answers to that question one is a very dull and detailed academic answer about the fact that our evidence for his coronation is very problematic the other answer i think is is, is a quicker answer to say that he gets the support of most of the warriors mm. and he gets the blessing uh, of, of churchmen he might have been anointed with holy oil, the sort of thing that we're going to be seeing in Britain um, very soon with the coronation of, of King Charles III, who will be um, properly uh, crowned next year, we think, rather than uh, this year. Uh, so ritual of some sort, some ceremony to mark Pippin and his family. It's really important that he had young children and a wife because it's about saying this, this is the new royal line. And so the blessing of the church, possibly anointing, as well as the consent of the warriors in a holy place, a, a great monastery somewhere in Francia, probably in Soissons, to try and mark himself off as special. It's about trying to look unique, trying to look special and willed by God. Mm. So how does this relation with the Lombards? Because they, are, they aren't Frankish, right? They're, they're a different kind of race or a clan at they're, the time. I'm, I'm not sure about race is the right word, but you know they're different clan and empire in a sense. So how does he does it go against them, or does he? How was how is the relations with the Lombards here? The relationship with the Lombards is is very complicated. Um, they are indeed a different people, a different a different one of the barbarian groups who who, who rule the West at this time. Western Europe is ruled by 
warrior elites, whether they're in the British Isles, the Anglo-Saxons or, 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 or Irish kings, or in Italy or in, in Francia. In Italy, it is indeed, as you say, the Lombards. Franks and Lombards are rivals. They're very close. They share the same culture. Pippin, as a young man, is sent by his father to be brought up at the court of the Lombard king. And so he grows up at the Lombard king's court when he's a teenager, when he gets the, the ritual of shaving his beard for the first time. And it's the, the great warlord of the Lombards, shaves his beard at a ceremony that probably goes back to ancient Rome, where, where Roman youths dedicated their shaved shave beard to, to the gods, I think. And so there's close family bonds and close bonds of, of marriage alliance with the Lombards, but there's also political rivalry. The Franks, if they're going to expand south of the Alps, they're going to hit the Lombards. If the Lombards are going to expand north of the Alps, they're going to hit the Franks. And there's the role of the popes as well, who, who, who are players in Italy. And the Lombards are a formidable, formidable grouping. Uh, so relationships with the Lombards are, are an important angle. And I think they must have been a wee bit unnerved to see a new dynasty emerge among the Franks. But it's quite far away from the Lombard centres of power. I don't think they were very worried. Though later on, of course, things do change. Mm. Of course, that, that's changed since then with Charlemagne and later, yeah. yeah. Which we, of course, that's what this episode is about, and we can come back to him. And of course, and I wanted to, but first, I want to talk about the suit because I was reading Johannes Freud's book recently and on Charlemagne, and he claims that there, nobody really knows anything about Charlemagne's youth. So, how come it is not written down if he was the child of a king who's, yeah. who's you know, big new dynasty? You, you would think that people would write down, and if it became Later, is great founder of an empire that's been the last of a years. So, what, how come we don't know much about his youth here? Yep. Yeah, um, I think one answer is we know very little about anybody in, in this period that the early medieval period, the period before the year 1000, doesn't give us a lot of personal detail uh, about any individuals. And that when Charlemagne was a child, of course, people didn't know he was going to become mm. uh, Charlemagne. We know some things. We know, although Johannes Fried says we can't believe it, how he lost his first tooth while playing around uh, in, in, in a graveyard in a church ceremony and he cuts his tooth against the, uh, one of the gravestones. We do know that uh, he's very young when he um, is sent out to meet the Pope. When the Pope visits Francia in the year 754, Charlemagne is about six, and he's he's sent by his father uh, on horseback to lead a deputation of warriors to make sure the wee boy's okay to meet the Pope. So one thing we can say is that um, people started working when they were very young in this period, and that Charlemagne would have grown up to be well-educated. He's quickly trusted with a mission at the age of six. He would have then learned to ride and, and to hunt. Age of maturity is about 14. By that age, he would be um, sexually active and he'd be leading troops into battle. But nobody seemed, nobody knew that he would survive childhood and nobody knew that he was going to become Charlemagne. And Einhard, his friend who writes his biography after he dies, says, we don't know much about Charlemagne's childhood. But I think Einhard must have heard stories but they may have been about Charlemagne's rival with his brother. Einhard doesn't want to draw attention to conflict. But it's we don't know much about people's childhood in this period at all, about individuals' childhood. So, but can we depict kind of 
sort of imagine what its childhood was like when it comes to you know general royal families and aristocratic families of that era can depict kind of what like you said in you know, the hunt in you know, the right etc so is that the kind of depict from what life in general aristocratic and royal families was like yes he would have grown up with lots of other young people at the court not just his um his own family but with sons of the aristocracy uh, would have come to court so he'd grow up with people of his own age he would share their interests in in, in horse riding in in hunting which is the great passion of the aristocracy he would be probably quite well educated his father pippin had been educated at one of the great monasteries of the frankish world saint denis just north of paris and so he would have learned perhaps latin he would have followed his father um into battle uh, as a teenager charlemagne and his brother carloman his younger brother mm. his mother would probably have an important influence uh, he does seem to have been very close to his mother and he would have been unlike his father who wasn't brought up to be king charlemagne and his brother would be brought up to be kings to be rule and so his father would have selected wives for them from the aristocracy and things like that and certainly by the time he's a teenager he's certainly on campaign hmm. i mean you mentioned his brother i wanted to talk about him because he do, he does the way i understood it he dies at an early age doesn't he he's, he's he eventually grows most of his families he does have a sister i think but they yeah, don't um, they don't really grow up they most of them passes away quite early I think child mortality in the early middle ages is, is very high and um if you can get out of childhood you you can live quite a long time Charlemagne lives really quite a long time but he has a younger brother in the 750s or 760s who dies very young some of the other children die very young but his sister he's got one sister who lives right through into his own reign and his brother Carloman who who is his rival uh, who becomes his rival um he survives for a few years after their father dies but your family are, are a very paradoxical thing if you're a medieval aristocrat or or ruler they're your support but they're also your rivals lovely and, family re- reunions i imagine yes the family unit must have been very tense and he and his brother because you divide the succession in this period it's not primogeniture it's not the oldest son who inherits everything everything is divided and that means neither none of the brothers ever feel they get enough so you're absolutely programmed for conflict uh, with with your intimate family um and that means that all the aristocracy they have to take sides as well so it's built for conflict it's built for rivalry built for rivalry the way i understand the tarolo his brother he dies around 20 and isn't isn't that right he dies around the age of 20 yeah he'd have been about 20 he's born in 751 dies in 77 Three, I think, and um, they're about seven, seven, two, seven, seven, three. I can't remember. So he's going to die about twenty-one, twenty-two, and, and it just seems to be an illness. Uh, he just died very young, and that's when Charlemagne pounces uh, on his kingdom, and uh, his brother's young children, Charlemagne's nephews, uh, have to get away from their uncle because you really don't want your uncle to look after you because you're not going to survive if that happens. You're just not going to make it. Hmm. So. How does this change for Charlemagne? I mean, it's a tremendous amount of power, and I imagine he gets in. So, how how does he does he write? You said he rushes to the capital, but of the, what does what does he do next when he finally gains 
power and change. Well, I think um, I think the things to remember about Charlemagne. So he, he gains power in seven six eight when his father dies, and Charlemagne and his brother divide up the kingdom uh, on his father's deathbed. The kingdom is divided, and again, Charlemagne's mother uh, and the aristocracy play a role at, at the great sacred site of Saint Denis. So they have a very carefully staged death scene, and then both the brothers preside over the funeral of their father. It, so the ritual again is used to kind of bind the the rupture that, that death causes, and then each of the boys goes to their kingdoms. I, I think the point to remember is that Charlemagne, he isn't Charlemagne yet. He's just Charles. He's not Charles the Great. And I nobody believe his real name is Carolo. Isn't that right? Carolus, yeah. in Latin, Carl, Carl in German. Mm. He'd be Carl, and he doesn't know he's Charlemagne. And he doesn't do everything himself. He's dependent on his his warriors and his advisors, just as his brother is. What he's good at doing, I think he's very quick in his reactions, very decisive in his actions. When his brother dies, as I said, he, he moves on to the kingdom in a flash. And his brother's children and his brother's widow and some members of the aristocracy flee to Italy, which brings back the Lombards. Because he and his brother had both been manoeuvring for power in Italy uh, and playing off the papacy against the Lombards in a very murky and complex triangle of politics. But with his brother's death, the Lombards now get a key card because Carloman's widow and children go to the court of the Lombard king who has now Carolingian princes at his court. So this is a time bomb for Charlemagne, that these young princes are, are a kind of offstage threat to, uh, to Charlemagne back in Francia, north of the Alps. Mm. So is this when they decide to join this infamous Italy campaign? This is, this is indeed the, the, the trigger for Italy. But it does look as if, Charles, as if Charlemagne was quite reluctant to go into Italy, that... that he, he is, what drives him to Italy, may, we're told it's because he wants to protect the papacy. We're told that he's a good, uh, um, loyal son of the papacy and that his dynasty and the popes have been close. But it's more likely that he goes in to try and neutralise the threat of these children. And we do have evidence that suggests he's trying to buy the Lombards. We've got evidence from sources in Rome, not in Francia, that Charlemagne offers the Lombards a, a huge amount of treasure uh, for peace. And what would peace mean here? It, it may mean um, if you give me the children, mm. if you give me the children, then I, I won't invade. But the Lombards are, are overconfident. And I think they think they can they can keep Charlemagne under control and the Pope's under control, uh, and they don't. They think he won't invade, uh, and he does. And then very quickly he takes over the kingdom. Is he hesitant because he thinks he can have you know that they can have good relations with the Lombards that it can be a valuable relationship? It's a good, you know, bond between them. Yes, I mean it's not it's not a war of two ethnic groups clashing. He he'd actually married a Lombard princess um, at one stage in his attempt to make an alliance with the Lombards. He he marries a a, a Lombard princess. Uh, and the popes are are appalled at this, 
and, and write this terrible letter to both of the kings, Shaban and his brother, before the marriage, and they're not sure which one is going to marry a Lombard princess. And they say, oh, the Lombards are, are an inferior race. They, 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 they are the source of leprosy. They are, they are polluted. It, it's one of the very few sort of racist texts mm. from the early Middle Ages. But the, the, the alliance doesn't work. And when Charlemagne sends that princess back to her father, this is an insult. This is an insult mm. to the honour of the Lombards. And that must have made relations difficult. Um, she wasn't anything like the picture. No, no, no. <laughs> she's a, so she's, she's one of these women who are traded in this diplomatic network of women going across Europe to be traded in marriage to make alliances. And, and it, it, it's not a good not a good thing for, for the women. And Charlemagne goes in, Lombard Kingdom falls, uh, some of the Lombards go into exile, and he takes the title King of the Lombards. He doesn't abolish the kingdom, and he employs Lombards in his service. He executes some in the revolt. Is it more or less a space for Lombards state in that it was of the Lombards? Sorry? Is it more or less a puppet state that it was of the Lombard, or does he want to rely on it completely himself? That's um, that's a good question. It's I don't know if he's thinking like that. He His main interests are north of the Alps, mm. so he's not going to stay in Lombardy. And he's thinking, like all politicians, he's thinking, how can I fix this immediate problem of, of absorbing a new kingdom he hadn't thought perhaps he'd be able to conquer so he placates them by taking the title King of the Lombards, assuring them that they have an identity. He punishes them. He takes hostages north of the Alps for guarantees of good behaviour. Uh, eventually, he gives them one of his sons to be their king. Uh, but his priorities are, are north of the Alps. I mean, you say he doesn't abolish the Lombard Empire. So no. I was thinking that maybe he wants them as puppets, rulers, you know, that's... Yeah, yeah. he is one thing. I mean, I wouldn't want to underestimate his his ruthlessness uh, and his harshness because his nephews vanished from the historical record, and and he may they'd have been young boys, and and he may have had them killed because they're simply too dangerous to allow to survive. But he is. It's not like the twentieth century. It's really important. You know, the Middle Ages wasn't a great period, but um, it's not like the twentieth century with its racial and ideological determination to to uh, annihilate uh, opposition and remove the traces of previous regimes. Um, he 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 can't afford to do that, and he doesn't have the ideological desire to do that. So yes, it's it's about keeping the Lombards on board because they're useful. And he can govern through them, as well as letting the Franks get jobs in Lombardy. So this is the beginning of expanding what will be eventually become an empire. Yeah. So let's talk about forging an empire. Where does it, how does it how does it go on forging an empire? And eventually, of course, we would get there as well. You just do get crowned by the Pope, which yeah, basically that's where later we would get the title Holy Roman Emperor, of course, but. Uh, how does it go on forging an empire before let's talk about this before it gets crowned by the Pope? I think um the phrase forging an empire is maybe one of the things to to think about there. I, there are some historians who would argue he knows what he's doing, he's got a long-term plan. Mm. And the historians who, who've argued, modern historians have argued, and, and you know, it's an interesting argument that he, he's thinking in big geopolitical terms. That what he really wants to do is expand the Franks into the east, because along the river Danube, there's the, the, the nomadic confederation of the Abars who've got a big treasure, and he wants this treasure. He wants the economic resources there. So in order to do that, you need to control northern Italy. 
and you need to control southern Germany. And that explains how he builds an empire. You take Italy, then you take Bavaria, and you can move along the Danube. And so there's a kind of geopolitical plan right from the start. I, I, I'm I'm more sceptical. I, I don't think politicians always have these plans. And if they do, the plans are always, you know, survive encounter with reality. It's kind of builds an empire by accident that he's responding to challenges on the frontier with the Saxons. He's responding to the dangerous challenge of the Duke of Bavaria. And then over time, where he does think about forging an empire, I think you're right there, is maybe in the 790s. And that's when he's beginning to look like a different kind of ruler by then. He's not just another barbarian warlord. There's something different about him at that time. So one answer to your question is time. It takes him time for him and his advisors to become conscious of what they're what they're doing. I'm inclined to think as a young ruler, he's responding to, to challenges and opportunities and maybe not maybe not gonna get a master plan. By the seven nineties it's rather different. So but it doesn't matter like he wants want to conquer the entire Europe as a whole. He doesn't have that no, kind of ambitions. No, 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 he doesn't have that. Um, I don't. I really don't think he does. He's too busy. Um, he's a very busy man. We tend to divide up the reign into the years of war, then the years of empire, the years of culture, the years of government. He's doing all these things at exactly the same time. Mm. And so his 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 lived experience is is not compartmentalized the way we tend to compartmentalize it uh, as we have to, so we can analyze it and understand it. He's in the middle of it. And I think like a lot of politicians, he's an opportunist. Um, he is creative. By the 790s, he, some sort of vision is beginning to emerge, I think. But that takes, it really does take time. So he chooses Arkin as a capital. Is there, is there a strategical reason why he, choose, why he chooses Arkin as a capital there? Well, I think if if you've read that that biography by Johannes Fried, the, the German historian, he says it's because he loves swimming, and you've got the hot water at Aachen, you've got the hot bath. Yeah, at I remember that when you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, uh, and Fried, who always likes to be provocative uh, and kind of try and reimagine the past in, in new ways, is is I think being provocative there? But it's a it's a good reason. I, I think Aachen. There's no strategic reason that like it's a strategic strategic location, like Constantinople or. Rome was for the Roman Empire, so that's a kind of thing. No, it, it's not. It's not quite that. It's it. It is a complicated question. It's a complicated topic, and even calling it a capital is is it's not quite. I mean, I think you're right. I think it does in the seven nineties and later. It does become his favored residence, his favorite palace, but it's not his only palace. It's in. It's near the lands of his family. It's near a lot of royal lands. It's well-placed for hunting. It's a palace that his father liked. It's a palace, it's an area that he likes. And certainly at the end of the 780s, the beginning of the 790s, he starts a massive building project there. It is the grandest of all his palaces. And the word capital city is maybe slightly anachronistic because it 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 is like London or, or Oslo or Washington or Paris which continue to function even if the prime minister or the president isn't there, government functions. Not quite like that in the Middle Ages, but it's the grandest of his residencies. And yes, I think it is his, it's the centre of the realm by, by the 790s and early 800s. With his justice in the whole Roman Empire, which is now maybe around 8, 20, 30 episodes ago, and we discussed that 
emperors they would travel a lot during the reign to you know talk to the people and ask for the problems and not necessarily fix it, but you know they would trap would not necessarily stay stay in in the capital like you like you said and, and they would just travel around the, their empire to talk to the common people. It's a- it's a more mobile world in some ways than, than, than modern capitals because in modern capitals the administration remains the same. He's different from the two rulers in, in Europe at this time who stay put, speaking very broadly, are, are the popes in Rome and the emperors in Constantinople. Mm. The Frankish rulers travel, but they don't spend all their time traveling. As Shaba gets older, he spends the winters in Aachen. Everything slows down in this period in the winter. The family gathers around him, the, the, the court scholars gathers around him, and he's got this great setting for them. Uh, if you wanted to find Charlemagne, you would need to ask people where he was, and people know about the itinerary. Letters of his friend from England, Alquin, are full of information about where the king's going to be this year and how you can meet the king. Mm. But by the time you get after the year 800, Aachen's a good bet for, for finding him. And it looks different from his other palaces. The Roman element that you mentioned, he's learned from Roman cities like Ravenna. He's obviously very impressed by Ravenna, which is one of the ancient Roman capitals, because he strips it of a lot of um, its decoration and architecture and brings that north of the Alps to Aachen, including a statue of the great barbarian ruler uh, Theodoric the Ostrogoth. And that's brought to to Aachen to adorn this, this Ravenna north of the Alps. If, if we go to Arkin today and if we travel there, can we see traces and remains of Charlemagne's reign today if we go to visit the city? Some, yes, some does. The um, the great hall of the palace is gone uh, and the, the chapel, the church that was part of his palace um, is incorporated into the Gothic cathedral and was restored in the 19th century. But effectively, that centre of the Gothic cathedral is Charlemagne's church. Mm. And you can see the throne on, on, on the upper floor, which we now are pretty sure dates from Charlemagne's reign. And that would have enabled him to look down on the altar during the services. Uh, and so the decoration and the architectural uh, design of Aachen, as you know, it's an eight-sided chapel uh, and it's full of number symbolism. And the symbolism might be referring to the apocalypse, the end of history and the final unfolding of God's plan. It's meant to recall Jerusalem as well as uh, the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly Jerusalem. Even though it's built before his emperor, there's obviously some very, very ambitious thinking going into it. And you can still see that. And although when you go to Aachen, we can't always work out the numbers ourselves, the sheer splendor of the building is, is still immensely impressive over a thousand years later. It's really worth a trip. Really I mean, something something I found fascinating re- reading Johannes Fried's Charlemagne is that he mentioned that his court was quite, it was quite varied of people, different people from all, from Anglo-Saxon mm-hmm. world, Irish people even. Yes. And a lot from all over, basically. And a lot of rep- races represented the Darkin yes. court. So let's talk, I found that fascinating. So let's talk about the court of Charlemagne for a bit, which I found quite fascinating. Oh, I think the court is really remarkable. And we're lucky we know so much about it. Uh, we know about it because, well, we've got the buildings of Aachen and some other palaces. We've got letters uh, from Alcuin, the, the man from England. We have poems by a lot of the poets, Alcuin from England, um, Theodulf 
from Spain. Uh, we've got letters about astronomy from uh, Irish scholars writing to Charles at the court. And we know about the women at the court. Uh, and that's one of the striking things about Charlemagne's court is that, that the women are very prominent, not just uh, the queens, uh, but also his mistresses uh, and, as the reign goes on, his daughters. And one of the interesting things about the court is, to go back to your earlier point about it being a capital, even if the people aren't at the court, they're thinking about it. We've got a sequence of poems that describe the court. One, this uh, Spanish writer, Theodolf, who, who's a Visigoth, comes from Spain, he's at court in the 790s. He writes a poem, a very long poem that describes people at the court and, and tells you what it's like to be at court. But he's not at court when he writes it. He writes it as a letter to the court to remind the people at the court about himself. So when people are away at the court, they're thinking about the court and they want people at the court to remember them. And they do it through this very particular medium of communication, a highly complex Latin poem which refers to people at the court by their nicknames. And so if you've got nicknames, you've got a, an elite group. You've got a group of people who know each other, who are relaxed with each other, but who can exclude people who are not part of that group. Mm -hmm. So you get this classic court culture, which is about access and closing access and defining people, who's in and who's out. So we mentioned Irish and Anglo-Saxons being in the court of Charlemagne. So how how does the Irish, even Irish people, which is quite far away from Archean, and Anglo-Saxons, how do they end, end up in the court of Charlemagne? I suppose one answer is um, uh, money. That uh, The great lords of the Middle Ages are great patrons, and they will pay money for uh, craftsmen. And so you get... Work, for example, we've got a beautiful uh, cross, a, a beautiful uh, chalice from uh, Bavaria that is possibly, that looks, some of the design looks a bit like the kind of design you get in the British Isles, in, including Ireland. And it may be a craftsman from there who got employment with the Duke of Bavaria. And the great poets, the great writers, the great scholars know that Charlemagne's an open-handed patron. He, he's a talent spotter. And so he will give them employment he will give them rewards, he will give them promotion, uh, and he will expect work from them. They will work for the regime. They will write poems glorifying the king. They will write poems saying how generous the king is. And if you write a poem praising the king's generosity, you're also encouraging the king to be generous and saying, could you give me a bit more money for being a poet? But you also get jobs in the administration. And he is open to bringing in people from all corners of Europe. The, the Lombards are there, the, the Spaniards are there, the Franks are there, the uh, uh, Irish and, and Anglo-Saxons are there, uh, because it, it, it's an international society. That way, Latin is a common language, Christianity is a common religion, but the open-handedness of the great patron, he's the Lord of the Rings. That's what Lord of the Rings means. It means the great patron, the giver of gold, the giver of treasure, the giver of jobs. So it's a magnet. And the more people that go, then the more your reputation goes and then the more people want to come. Now we do have actually, and I, I don't remember, I don't think it was in the Johannes Freyd's book that I read this, but it's somewhere else that, where where we had had envoys from Al-Andalus as well as Islamic Spain trying yes. to get into Chalmers' corporate. And the way I understood this, they, they were, were really accepted. They had to wait 
for rates too long and that he didn't wasn't interested in Al Andalus. Uh, while we are going to talk about his failed uh, campaign in Spain later, mm. right? he did he didn't accept the envoys from Al Andalus as the, as I understood it. Well, I, I think different historians take different views from, from Johannes Fried and uh, uh, and Janet Nelson in her wonderful biography of Charlemagne. Um, has got some things to say about this. This is an area that interests people now more than it did maybe about a generation or two generations ago because of the dimension of the Islamic presence um, in Europe uh, and the way that's something people talk about now in, in, in modern society. The envoys from Spain in, in the 770s who, who track him down in, in Saxony um, seemed to offer him an, an invitation to intervene in, in the politics of Islamic Spain. And, and he's quite happy to do that. Mm-hmm. The envoys from... I understand that they were rejected, that he rejected the envoys from Islamic Spain. Well, no, I, I don't think it's as straightforward as that. I, I think he he goes to Spain, but he goes to Spain on his own terms. He doesn't necessarily do what they want him to do. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that, Yes. I would agree with that. But he's also got relationships, as you know, with the caliph in, in, in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was Harun. going to talk about that right after, yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, of course, you mentioned it, and, and what, I want to talk about that now, because it seems, because how does he end up having a relationship with Harun al-Rashid? He's quite, Baghdad is quite far away. It would take <laughs> three, at least three years one way, I think, yes. to get to yes. Baghdad. So how does yes. he manage to... Get a relation. It wasn't like sending an email or taking a plane, which would take three three hours or three years, but, but it would Absolutely. take quite a while. So, how does Absolutely. he end up having a good relationship with? Yeah. I won't say would hesitate calling good, but you know how how does he end up having a relationship sort of, sort of with Harun al Rashid, the opposite caliph at the time? Uh, well, I think this is one of the most interesting aspects of the reign, although it's maybe not the most significant, but it's really interesting. Um, he doesn't even request an elephant as well, doesn't he? He gets an elephant. You're absolutely right. He gets an elephant. We don't know if he asks for one, but, but he gets one. And this is um, the great gift of, of a great ruler. It, it is clear that in this period, the most significant uh, uh, power as far as, if you're thinking about the Mediterranean uh, and eastern Mediterranean, the most significant power is, is the new dynasty in, 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 in the Islamic world, the Abbasids, and the creation of, of Baghdad, a, you know, a much bigger centre mm-hmm. than Aachen. And so from Baghdad's point of view, it costs nothing to send an elephant to a barbarian ruler in the West. This is small change. And you can do it and make the barbarian ruler ruler feel good, and it costs you nothing. On another level, Charlemagne's very interested in the Middle East. He's very interested in Jerusalem. Mm. And he's interested in Jerusalem. Aachen is meant to echo Jerusalem. He gives money to churchmen and churchwomen, to nuns in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's under Islamic rule, but had been part of the Byzantine Empire. And it may be that both Charlemagne and the Caliph are thinking, Let's ignore the Byzantine Empire mm. here. And Charlemagne can play at being a global figure, whereas the Caliph really is a global figure. And he thinks, well, I'll just be nice to the Frankish ruler because he's not a problem for me. And it might offend the Byzantine. He's on the other side of the world. Yeah, effectively the other side of the world. And and the Caliph, you know, he, he's not controlling Spain at this time. So it's not like he's going to launch an invasion from Spain. They've got other things to do. Uh, it, it's diplomacy on a big scale, but it's very hard to grasp 
its true significance. It matters to Charlemagne, I think, because it's written, you know, people are amazed that an elephant arrives and eventually... Was it, was it a, did he want to use it as a war elephant? Well, or just he, well, he's, he's going to take it north to fight the Vikings at, at one stage. Uh, this seems to be part of the plan, but sadly... That would have been quite a shock. It would have been fantastic. <laughs> it really would have been fantastic. It would be like that bit in the um, the final bit of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King, when mm. the kind of elephant figures turn up and yeah. Legolas uh, jumps on top of an elephant and fires his arrows. That only count as one. Yes, yes, you wonder if it would <laughs> like that. Uh, but in fact, it's obviously, it's in the tradition of rulers sending each other uh, exotic animals. Mm. And later 9th century sources, looking back at Charlemagne, say that he sent magnificent hunting dogs to, 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 to Baghdad, which he might or mm. might not have done, uh, because rulers give each other great, great gifts. But Jerusalem is more important to him that, than Baghdad, and that's what he's thinking about, and he's got invested money there, and People from Jerusalem attend the imperial coronation in Rome in 800, which is very significant, I think. And of course, this brings me to the next. And uh, that when they've been talked about this earlier, the crowning of Charlemagne by the Pope, how does that happen? How does that come about? Where because it doesn't call himself the leader of the Romans yet, does it? That's that's a later yeah. invention, so to speak. But how does it go about that getting crowned by the Pope? It's It's a really complicated in some ways it's very simple and other ways it's very mm. complicated it's some historians think it's bound to happen you know in the 790s he's holding this great meeting at frankfurt in 794 where he takes on the byzantine empire says your theology is wrong where he takes on heresy in spain which is not part of his empire he's already posing as an emperor other historians say it's an accident. The Pope is attacked in the year 799 by a, in a riot in Rome. He appeals to Charlemagne for help, and that triggers the imperial coronation, which is really a kind of accident to help get the Pope out of trouble. I, I think it's a combination of the two. It is a, the Pope's in trouble, and the Pope needs a strong protector from the north. But Charlemagne's advisors say, well, this isn't just a normal crisis. Alcuin, the Englishman, writes to Charlemagne and says, if you look at the world, there are three great figures who control the world. One is the Pope, and he's in trouble. The other one is the Byzantine Emperor, the Emperor of the new, new Rome, and he's been blinded by his mother, the Empress Irene, so they're in trouble. So you, Shaman, are the only figure left to keep things going. So it's your responsibility to, to step up and you know, save the papacy and save the the orcumene, save the realms. Is this because he doesn't really call himself emperor at this point, does he? Is this where he start calling himself imperator or emperor at this point? That's again, that's one of the key questions uh, uh, about what happens in in eight hundred. Charlemagne's great friend Einhard, who writes the famous biography of him after Charlemagne dies, has the famous story that Charlemagne was surprised on Christmas Day eight hundred mm. when the Pope crowned him. Emperor. Uh, Einhard says that Charlemagne told him that if he'd known what was going to happen that day, he wouldn't have gone to church in Rome on mm. Christmas Day. Uh, and it's impossible to believe that Charlemagne was surprised. What Einhard is saying here is that Charlemagne's modest and, you know, was saying he didn't think he was worthy to be emperor. But it's been planned back in 799. He sent monks over to Jerusalem and they turn up 
in Rome on Christmas Day 800. So they know where to be. They know where to go and they know when to come back. The preparation for the coronation would have been intense. But yes, he doesn't immediately work out what it means to be emperor. It takes him, I think, a few years to work out what has changed and what that means for him. And that's an interesting topic. It's kind of, we were discussing in our episode of Caligula, which I did last year, that he was really the first emperor of Rome. Not the others, it was just a probable title until Caligula, because he had absolute power. So it's kind of the same here, I think, that it was just a title at first. And then later he kind of, okay, now I know what it means. Yeah. Well, I think that's the good point. The emperor itself is a title. It's something that changes and develops. Mm. Yeah. So from Augustus to Caligula to Diocletian or to Constantine, it's continually changing. The thing I think to remember about 800 and Charlemagne's coronation is that he's not the only player. The popes aren't entirely passive. Uh, Pope Leo III, who is a very shifty What's the kind of that kind of that I would hesitate to You do me a favor, I do you a favor. Kind of. Thing. It's a bit of that, and a Byzantine source says that's exactly that's exactly how the Byzantines look at this because they, they think, well, how can he be emperor? Because we're the emperors. Yeah. Yeah, I want to get back to that, actually, because, you know, unlike the 19th century and early 20th century, everyone was either Tsar, Kaiser, or Emperor of of whatever realm, Habsburg, Germany, etc., where it didn't really mean anything. But in those those times, being Emperor was was quite controversial, having a different Emperor, right? Where, as the Byzantines, very only real Emperors, as they saw it. And so in some ways, it, it is a, a, it's the revival of, of, it's a Roman title. So he, he, he's a Roman emperor. We, we have a coin in which he's got the laurel wreath that he's called Emperor Augustus, the August Emperor. And that looks as if he's taking it very seriously. And I think in many ways, he did take the title very seriously. But he doesn't produce that coin until 12 years later. Um, so why does he wait? And one answer to that is he wants to be recognised by the Byzantine imperial powers. Yeah, because we talked about like, like this earlier, and he, you said that if it might have been a man or a different case, they would have accepted him as emperor. But Irene kind of realised that it could be a useful ally, potential ally, perhaps. And she, as, I think this is what Johannes Fried argues as well, that she really accepted his emperorship because... She looked at his as being a useful ally to her. Yes, that uh, th- there are stories in, in the sources that, that there was a marriage proposal uh, that maybe Charlemagne could marry uh, Irene. And, and that does seem almost absurd. To get, to get back to your point about geography, Aachen's very far away from Constantinople. Mm. Rome's quite far away from Constantinople. You can't really imagine them setting up house together, but maybe it really means a, politi- a close political alliance uh, because she, she's in trouble in, in Constantinople by that time. What does happen is that, yes, there's some tension between the Franks and the Byzantines. She, Irene is, is deposed. Franks and Byzantines clash over claims to Italy, which is the key part of the Mediterranean both of them want to have influence over. But by about 811, 812, Charman lets the Byzantines have control of Venice. That's quite an expensive thing to give away. Venice is a, a very useful place to have. It's not and a real Ven- Venetian Empire yet. I it's imagine. not yet the Venetian Empire. You're right. We shouldn't project back. You're absolutely right. But but it's still a significant concession he makes to the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. And they 
send a, an envoy to Aachen, they send ambassadors to Aachen who chant the imperial hymns of praise mm. to Charlemagne at that time, 811-812, and that's when we think he issues the coin. The coins with his imperial title and his imperial appearance, and it's very few of them were issued. And it looks as if he then thinks, because Charlemagne knows popes don't make emperors. Emperors make emperors. And although he gets crowned by, by Leo III, the Pope, Charlemagne must have known that's not how Roman emperors are made. We tend to think it is how emperors are made because we're very familiar with the medieval empire uh, and the Holy Roman Empire. But it's quite a radical move by the papacy in the year 800. It's a very daring uh, and creative move by a Pope who's more than just a tricky and slippery individual. He's got some high-powered thinking going on in the Curia as well. So, of course, something we haven't discussed yet, and I'm not sure if you've already done this, if you are a little, have to go back to the time, I'm sorry, sorry about that, if I didn't mix up a little bit right now, but I was, even in our writing episode, we discussed how St. Olaf, the Norway's, one of Norway's only saints, Christianized Norway, it was either... You become Christian or you get your hands chopped off. And they call it the Charlemagne method. So, and so let's talk about the Christianization of the of the German and Germany and the Empire. So how the, how does it go about? Was it really was it as brutal as Saint Olaf in Norway would be a few yeah, hundred years later? Or how how did they go about Christianizing his empire? If if we look at what happens east, east of the Rhine in, in Saxony, the, the pagan landscape east of the Rhine, well, historians would dispute that, but let's call it pagan, it doesn't have an organised church. Um, and in this campaign of 20 or 30 years, it's astonishingly brutal. It really is very brutal indeed. It involves uh, massacres of unarmed prisoners. It involves massive physical destruction. It involves deportation of people. It involves the destruction of the indigenous culture, it involves the imposition of Christian belief through fire and sword. We have a piece of legislation, the first Saxon capitulary, that's probably issued, we should imagine it being issued by an army, that Charlemagne and his army are going through Saxony saying, if you don't get your children baptised, the penalty is death. If you eat meat in Lent, the penalty is death. And this would have been a world that wouldn't have had churches where you could take your children to be baptised, where you wouldn't have calendars telling you when Lent began, so you don't know when to stop eating sausages. Um, it doesn't mean that they did kill everybody who disobeyed, it's just the message would have been one of terror. He, he also does other messages of, of, of enticement, but this would be com- conversion at the point of a sword. And so people refer to Charlemagne as, as one of the apostles, but the apostle with the tongue of iron meaning the relentless preaching, but also the sword. So it's, it's, but what you're doing with compulsory conversion is, according to medieval beliefs, you're saving people because pagans will go to hell and will burn. Uh, just as uh, Christians who believe wrongly will also burn. Uh, and so you're saving people. Well, I guess not my faith sealed then. Sorry? I guess that's my faith sealed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, luckily, we don't live in the Middle Ages. Mm. But it, the, the, and so the Christianization is on the one hand in Saxony, uh, militarized and um, a ferocious compulsion. But it's also then the long work of building churches, teaching, training, social adaptation. 
But he's also doing the same in his own realms, the, the, the Christian parts of Francia. He's not using an army to do it, but he's also determined to impose certain kinds of standards of, of behavior. and well, wasn't more, more or less an early version of Spanish Inquisition, in a sense? I, I, I think it's, it's, it is about checking up on people. It is about trying to bring people up to a certain level of, of standard. It's about making sure people don't listen to magicians, that people don't uh, follow witches. To some extent, he's trying to save people from con men. The legislation for his own people says, look, if somebody's going around saying that they've had a letter from Jesus Christ, tell the local bishop, because Shaman thinks people don't get letters from Jesus Christ. And, and he's... Ah, I just found Palma Jesus here, just let me show you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and a letter, because in the 8th century, you hear the stories of people going around saying, oh, I've just a letter fell from the sky and it's from Jesus mm -hmm. and I'm a special person. So part of it is about... Yeah, some of some of it is about making life a lot duller by saying, no, nothing of this is true. You've got to really check up with the authorities. Some of it is about social control, of course, and some of it is about social protection. But the, the big legislation he issues from Aachen in 789 called the General Warning, the General Admonition, is about disciplining Christian society and ensuring people follow norms. Mm -hmm. How successful that is, hard to judge, and it takes decades for that kind of thing to work. But the conquest of the Saxons is part of his mission uh, as a Christian ruler, and he's a deeply Christian ruler who happens to have hands stained with blood of his own nephews, possibly, and certainly the Saxons and his opponents. But he is a deeply, deeply Christian figure, and it's about imposing the correct norms, as he and his advisors see it. And, right. and it's about his responsibility. This is because he knows he will answer to this, uh, to God in the next life. And that's a very scary thought. Now, you mentioned that he did go to Spain himself for, as an envoy, but he also tried to attack Spain and, and made war on Islamic Spain. But he does fail, doesn't it? So how, how, do, how come that does his, is he trying to kind of do a new battle of tours in a sense? Or is he trying to take he, back the Islamic Spain? I don't, he's, I think that, he doesn't think of Spain as Islamic Spain, that, that mm. in this period, the, the Franks and the Christians of the West don't really understand what Islam is. Uh, you know, they don't like it. Uh, and they see the Muslims as, as infidels, but they don't. But infidel just means not faithful. And you would say the same about rebels who are Christians or you'd say the same about heretics. And they tend to think of Islam and not as a separate religion, but maybe as, as a heresy. They're, they're still quite puzzled by it he's perfectly happy to to um ally with some islamic figures in spain but yes he does conduct military campaigns in spain the campaign in 778 is a famous failure but that's on the way back when he's attacked by uh, the, the basques that's the famous battle at Roncesval when roland uh, fights the rearguard action and dies heroically in the 11th century western europe that becomes a kind of proto-crusade story mm. of Charlemagne's army fighting against Muslim infidels. That's not what happens in 778. A few years later, yes, the Franks do expand into Islamic Spain and conquer Barcelona. So it's not all failure. They, they push down into Barcelona. Charlemagne's son, Louis, uh, succeeds in capturing Barcelona. But they, they have no plans to as far as we can see, to conquer the whole of Spain. 
or, or to stand. It's not like a kind of cold war between superpowers uh, at this period. It's not really like what's going to change in the era of the Crusades. Although some, some historians now, a younger generation of historians now, are, are looking at this in new ways and saying there's maybe more going on here than we thought. Mm. So, of course, it's something you haven't discussed while you mentioned them. You mentioned the elephant against the Vikings, which would have been spectacular. Yes. But they, they do come in and they do cause trouble for Charlemagne as well when, when they enter the, Euro, the European scene, don't they? And he does seem to have a bit of a problem with Denmark. Yeah, yes. Because it's quite close to his empire. Yes, yes, so absolutely. Let's talk about the Vikings in yeah. Charlemagne's, yeah, in Charlemagne's the, the, reign. This is ex- it's around the period for Charlemagne's at the peak of his powers, the 800 crowned emperor and, and getting the elephant, exactly as you say. Um, it's exactly at this period that our, our evidence starts telling us about the emergence of these piratical figures in, in Western Europe, attacking uh, holy islands off the, the British Isles coast, Lindisfarne in the east, Iona uh, off the coast of Scotland, um, and also the, the northern French coastline. Uh, and Charlemagne we know, builds defences along that coastline. And he's very worried about the Danish king, who is maybe not as powerful as Charlemagne, but who's able to mobilise very significant forces. And so Einhard, again, in his biography of Charlemagne, it is clear that the Franks are worried about King Godfrey of Denmark. They do try to settle peace, I think, at some point, but it doesn't work out. Yes, I think uh, because Charlemagne isn't there, right? And then Knut is trying to st- his stands him up or something, right? It's it's Charlemagne is, is is pretty shocked after eight hundred when the Danes seem to be threatening the northern part of his kingdom, and he mobilizes mm. uh, an army in eight eleven or so. There's a treaty between the Franks and the Danes, and we have the names of the very high ranking Frankish warriors and and, and churchmen who, who preside over the treaty. So it's very very serious. Luckily for the Franks. The Danish king dies, he's assassinated, and then there's a a quarrel uh, among the Danish royal family, and that keeps them busy. It's in the next generation that the uh, warriors from the north really make their impact. The problem for the Franks is they've been too successful. They've pushed east and north and come into the Scandinavian orbit. And that fighting for supremacy of, of trade and piracy and influence in, in the Baltic and in the North Sea, where the, the naval powers of Scandinavia really have a powerful hand to play, is going to be very problematic for the Franks after Charlemagne's death. At the later years of his reign, this is a, a shadow on the horizon, a cloud on the horizon. It's not yet the problem it's going to become. But I think you're right. I think there's something at the court they are worried about the King of Denmark after 800. Yeah, he, he's a significant figure for I them. think they yeah. do have a meeting, but Charlemagne doesn't show up and it kind of pisses off the King of Denmark. I'm not quite yeah, sure. I, I can't remember if if he's meant to go to that meeting, but if you think of what the Danes are doing, they build this great earthwork across uh, the Danavirke in the south of Denmark, yeah. across the peninsula. So they're able to mobilise labour They've got the ocean-going ships. He, he's got a warrior aristocracy. And they've got all the Frankish shop windows on their door. The expansion of Frankish empire, the building of churches, means you've basically built a lot of banks full of gold and treasure right on the, on, on the frontier with, with Scandinavia, which is an open invitation to yeah. Scandinavian warriors. We start doing in the 9th century what Charlemagne the Franks did in the 8th century, just smash and grab raids uh, mm. uh, everywhere. 
And of course, something we haven't discussed yet, and you mentioned Louis the Pious, of course, is Charlemagne's mm-hmm. sons and daughters. Yes. Because he does quite, of course, nobody ends up following the rules, but he does create quite some strict rules for them to follow, which doesn't go quite as well as he hoped it would. <laughs> because of course it wouldn't. So yes. Let's talk about those rules and, and in relationship with his sons. Yeah. That's one of the for me. That's one of the most interesting parts of the of the reign. One of the most interesting aspects of the reign is that at the heart of this huge empire, a million square kilometers, where there's loads of people who you would never have seen Charlemagne, and most people on a sunny Wednesday like today would be out working in the fields and not really thinking about the royal family. But at the heart of that empire uh, is a family, and it's a very quarrelsome family. One of Charlemagne's sons. Pippin the Hunchback rises in revolt against his father because he feels he's not getting a share of the inheritance uh, and seems to have planned to kill not only his father, but to kill his brothers. Uh, Pippin is then locked away in a, in a monastery. After the year 800, Shaman's getting quite old now. His sons have become mature and they're wondering when will they get their inheritance. And so he does divide up the empire in the year 806. As you see, this very elaborate plan for the three legitimate sons who have not rebelled against him. And he says some interesting things in that document. He works out which how he's going to divide the empire up among all three of them. He doesn't give any of them the imperial title, which is quite strange. He reminds them that their sisters, his daughters, should be allowed to get married if they want to. But Charlemagne it doesn't famously, happen, does it? No. And Charlemagne famously doesn't allow his daughters to marry. And he keeps them at court where they're very useful to him because they're members of the family and they're close to him, but without allowing them to get married, they can't form dynasties of their own to to challenge him. And you can't keep the lid on that all the time. And I think the sons are getting more and more impatient. I think it says that they're not allowed to be sent to a monastery either, which would have been... And of course, what happens when he dies is is the first thing the surviving son does is send all his sisters into... into nunneries. I think what they're all doing in these later years of the reign is they're all making bargains. That uh, Charlemagne, uh, he doesn't, when his wife dies in 800, he doesn't marry again. Mm. And I think the son... Is there some genuine affection there? Well, I I think that that he, Charlemagne is is, is a ruler who enjoys women's company, perhaps excessively by, by the standards of some churchmen, but he's a man who enjoys the company of men, he enjoys the company of women, he's a very outgoing figure in that way. But I think the sons have told him no more queens after this. We are the only legitimate sons you're going to have. And and at this period, it really doesn't matter enormously if you're legitimate or illegitimate, but it can be made to matter. So I think the sons are, are, are putting some pressure on him and the daughters are saying, okay, we agree not to get married as long as you're alive, dad, but you've got to allow us to get married when you die because we've got to look after ourselves. And so he tries to tell the rest of the family, the girls must be allowed to get married. But none of this works out, as you but said. It, here's the thing, though. If, if he doesn't want his daughters to marry to form dynasties, why doesn't he send them to monas- nunneries, which would seem the easiest solution to the, the problem? Well, he, he they, they do have convents to go to, but they're too useful to be at court. They provide a, a glamour at court, and they provide, some historians have said, they're like the equivalent, the daughters at Charlemagne's court in Aachen, especially after 800, and some of them go to Rome for the coronation, so they're very prominent figures, 
and we know that they have sexual liaisons with powerful Frankish aristocrats. So, so they're they're useful at creating informal alliances. But some historians have said they're kind of like the eunuchs at the court of the Byzantine emperor. These are special figures, the daughters. Since they're not allowed to get married, they can't challenge him. And their only source of power, just like eunuchs at the Byzantine court, their only source of power is the ruler. So they owe everything to the ruler. So it's a way in which he can control them. And also they can they can grant and control access. So they get prominence, but he gets dependence. They're too useful for him to 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 send away. And I think he's genuinely he's genuinely fond of their company. Mm. So, of course, he's quite old, like you said, and eventually he passes away. So, mm. how quickly does it, and what, and what does it fall? Because, as we know, I don't think we need to ask why in this case, because, as we know, they don't get along quite well, his sons and sisters. So, how quickly does it fall apart after his death, the empire he forged? Well, I, I, I think the, well, there, there's, um, there's the exciting events of, of his death and, and his son Louis the Pious coming to court and um, the fights within the imperial family. But you're asking a bigger question. And I think the quick answer to the question about how quickly does it fall apart is not quickly at all, not quickly at all, that th- the empire remains united under his son, um, who in many ways runs a more sophisticated version uh, of empire than Charlemagne does. So up until the year 840, the empire's united. How united and how effective it is, that's a separate question. When Louis the Pious dies, famously the empire's divided up among his three sons and the Treaty of Verdun in 843. But the notion of empire remains and it's reunited, perhaps superficially, uh, in the 880s. So it's not until the end of the 880s really that the, the, the unitary territory controlled by this family falls apart but I, I would agree that that by the middle of the ninth century the title emperor is usually held by people south of the alps by the branch line of the family south of the alps it's a very different world but it's not it doesn't go into a straight decline this is i think the important the kind of research that people were doing when i was a student was all about re-evaluating Charlemagne's successors mm-hmm. and trying to get away from the shadow of Charlemagne, which goes stretched in, in, into the modern era, the, the reputation of the great emperor, the great king. So now, when does it start being called Holy Roman Emperor? Empire, sorry, Holy Roman Empire and Holy Roman title of Holy Roman Emperor, because it doesn't happen until after Charlemagne's death. No, it? it's, it's. I, I've always told my students, it, it's not helpful to call it the Holy Roman Empire in, in this period. And on the whole, I, I myself, as a, as a person who studies the history before the year 1000, I tend to think of it as being very late. But the idea of the empire being sacred, the Sacrum Imperium, the Holy Empire, very old idea, the title of Roman Empire, which is a kind of transnational title, even if German kings are holding it. I think by the time you get to the 12th century, on the whole, medievalists, modern historians who study the Middle Ages, I think tend to call the empire the empire, until about the year 1200, and then after the great German dynasties lose control of it, maybe after that we might call it the Holy Roman Empire for the later Middle Ages, until 1806, when famously Napoleon just calls the whole show to a halt, but then the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, uh, emerges in the 19th century. But I just think the term Holy Roman Empire is not immensely 
helpful as a description for what we're looking at in this period. Hmm. What, what would you say the legacy of Charlemagne is? It's it, that that's a huge question. That's a really, really huge question. And uh, I, I don't think we've got time to go into it. I suppose hmm. you could say that each age looks back at him for different for different things. The great paintings of him in the 16th century by Albrecht Dürer are all about the Holy Roman Empire. The medieval epics about uh, the Song of Roland uh, and the like are, are about the Crusades and about chivalry. The quarrels in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, a very famous quarrel breaks out among historians and members of the Nazi party about, was it Charlemagne or Karl der Grosse? Was he a French king or a German king? And in Hitler's entourage, there are some people who think, well, Charlemagne's a terrible figure because he attacked Saxons, who are the true Germans, pagan, live in forests and worship pagan gods. Yeah, I, 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 I forgot about that, that when you mentioned it, that he does use Charlemagne as a propaganda figure yeah. in, in Nazi Germany as well. Yeah, and there's a, a, and I think one of these quarrels of the 1930s that is instructive for our own times, because we tend to think in our own times of Twitter and social media, there's such a, it's a world where arguments don't matter. What matters is who's shouting loudest. In a way, that's happening in, in Germany in, in the 1930s, that these serious academic historians who put together a little collection of essays, was he Charlemagne or was he Karl de Gosse? Was he Charlemagne, Charles the Great in French, or Charles the Great in German? They're attempting, as their social duty as citizens, to, to, to get out of the university and speak to a broad public, but they're up against a, a regime that isn't very interested in academic argument at all. So that's part of the chapter of his legacy. The other thing is, nowadays, I suppose, he looks less important than he did, say, in the late 20th century. After 1945, the division of Europe into a communist and capitalist Europe, Charlemagne's adopted by West Germany as the good German who, who, who helped found the European Union, uh, mm. who, who, who brought France and Germany together. With the collapse of communism in 1989, it reminds us Europe's a lot bigger than Charlemagne's empire. And he looks in some ways, in some ways less significant as we're interested now in global history. In some ways, he looks a less significant figure. Still interesting, but a less significant figure. I would, I was, I was forgot to ask this when you recorded the episode about how the Roman Empire because with Peter Wilson. And he does argue at the end of this book as well that while you're European Union doesn't have a standing army, it doesn't have an army in that sense. It, mm. Would you say that the European Union is more or less a revival of the Holy Roman Empire 2.0? This is what some people uh, have argued. I, I, and I think it's it that takes us into the big question of uh, what is Europe? And uh, you and I are speaking from countries that were never part of Charlemagne's mm. empire and not part of the Holy Roman Empire. And that question of what is Europe and what Charlemagne's legacy in Europe is a very hot political question. And here it's Charlemagne's grandfather, who's maybe more significant, Charles Martel. And you will know that parties uh, uh, of, of uh, right-wing parties in modern Europe uh, are quite interested in Charles Martel, who fights the, the, the Muslim army in, mm. in the 730s. Uh, and Charles Martel is in some ways now, for very strange reasons, a, a more resonant figure than Charlemagne because of this 
idea that Europe is essentially Christian and that Islam is not part of Europe's history. And this is just historically false. It's just a yeah. historically false idea. It's not a matter of being political. There should be a history book in Islamic Spain because as I think it's, it's the case that Islamic Spain has been longer than what current Spain after Isabella and Ferdinand is from the, from 1400 that it's been ruling it, really longer of, than yeah. what current Spain I, is. That might be true. Or, or about the same time. I think so. It's conquered in 711. Conquered in 711. So these questions are exactly the kind of questions that, that, that historians need to grapple with. And, and so looking back on, on the, a, fig, a figure who died in the year 814, well over a thousand years ago, uh, whose legacy is a very mixed legacy, uh, there are ways in which it's still very much alive uh, and has been alive in the 20th century, in the 19th century, when Napoleon, even as he's getting rid of the Holy Roman Empire, says, you know, when he's being crowned emperor uh, for France, he says, tell the, as far as the Pope concerned, I am Charlemagne. Mm. And yet there's also little trivial things like a French pop song from the 1960s that criticises Charlemagne because they made everybody go to school. And I, I can't remember the name of the woman who sang it, but it's a, it's a fun wee song. And of course, Christopher Lee made a metal album about Charlemagne. Yes, yes of course. <laughs> I, I had, I'd forgotten the most important legacy mm. of all is the Christopher Lee heavy metal album about Charlemagne yeah. and the Saxons. What do you think I, about it, though, if, if, it, if you heard I, it? I, I'm a big fan of Christopher Lee. I'm a big fan of Christopher Lee, and I think it's striking that it picks out the the massacre of the Saxons. I mean, if you're going to do a heavy metal album, that's the kind of place you're going yeah. to go. But it picks out the 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 the, the slaughter uh, of the Saxons. But again, that kind of without trying to minimise the brutality of these wars, they're not like the wars of the 20th century, wars of of annihilation and wars of ideological commitment to wiping people out. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't mean if you're a Saxon victim of Charlemagne, it doesn't mean it's any nicer uh, knowing this, but Charlemagne's not Stalin. He's not Hitler. It's the real monsters of history are not these medieval rulers. Mm-hmm. It's the 20th century with them, Pol Pot, Sh- uh, Stalin, Hitler, mm-hmm. who are aberrant figures. Um, uh, and the, the wars, for all their horror, uh, that Christopher Lee's uh, uh, album evokes so interestingly are not quite the same as the wars of, of our own culture yeah. of the 20th and 21st century. I mean, it's surprising that he uses Charlemagne and not Charles Martel because he seems more like a fitting figure for Hitler to be used as a propaganda fighting infidels. Yeah, and, and actually Charlemagne is less important to, to Hitler suppose, than Rome. It's the Roman legacy and it, mm. it, it even Hitler thought some of his followers were, were nutters on this Germanic mm. nonsense but these are these currents are not entirely gone and yes the the, the SS division Charlemagne in uh, which is I think the French the French Nazis uh, uh, who joined that just as the Viking division was I think the some of the British uh, and of course uh, you got the Operation Barbarossa which is named after the medieval emperor, emperor yeah. Barbarossa yeah. so th- these figures in the past can be used uh, have been used and are used after 1945. Charlemagne's used as a kind of benevolent figure who, who brings Europe together. And it's vital for Western Europe to think in these terms because it, it's trying to, to, to stop the, the end, what seemed like the endless wars between France and Germany. So he became useful in the 1960s. Big and he probably will be used again as well later, I imagine. Yes, and there's still, the, the city of Aachen still awards the, the Charlemagne Prize for people who have helped European unity 
and uh, uh, Aachen's still still proud of Charlemagne and there's still a prize given in his honour. So I mean, he, it's understandable. Yeah, so there's still some evocation. Yes, there is. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk with you about Charlemagne. And before we go, do you have anything you wish to promote? Where can people find your book if they want to read it? I know I cannot wait to read it myself. <laughs> oh, that's, that's so where, where can people find your link? Books, do you have anything you want me to put in the in the description below? Yeah, very kind of you. The, the book is um, the book is published by Bloomsbury and it's just out in paperback. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I hope people enjoy it. I spent a very long time uh, uh, writing it, and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you about about the great king uh, and his family and and his history. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Please, like, if you liked this episode, please make sure to check out some of our other episodes. I'm sure you're going to find something you like. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a little review of my podcast. That would help us out a lot. This book is, and again, I repeat, Making and Unmaking of Carolingians, 751 to 888. So please check out for, for it. I'm an absolute reader myself. Please like, share, and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.